Peter chapter number one. First Peter chapter number one. I'm going to begin reading with the last two words of verse seven, and then go right into eight and read through verse twelve. Title of the message is Getting to Know the Holy Spirit. First Peter one, last two words of verse seven. Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom, though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed, not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Now I'm certain that the subject of the Godhead is a pretty vast topic to take up. We're introduced to God in Genesis 1. It says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But we're also immediately introduced to the Holy Spirit. It said the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. In the history of the church, emphasis often has been placed upon God the Father. This is why even in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. So the concept of our relationship to God as his children is one that has been dealt with over and again by early church fathers and by other historians. Jesus Christ, undoubtedly, has been the center of most teaching. The Gospels talk about the fact that he died on the cross for us. Even where they don't give an account of the birth, each Gospel gives an account of his death. So important are the redemptive purposes of Christ on the cross that it's impossible to deal with the Gospel without talking about him. But the Holy Ghost generally is overlooked. When we speak of the Trinity or the triune Godhead, we know that it consists of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. We hear a great deal about the Father and the Son and their operations. But the Holy Spirit is somewhat disregarded in a lot of teaching. But I contend that without the Holy Ghost, preaching, is of no value in virtue. The Christian life is meaningless without the help and the aid of the Spirit of the Lord. So according to Peter, it's this Spirit of Christ that was in the Old Testament times using men to prophesy of Christ's future suffering. Now think of that. People under the Old Covenant were able to foretell events hundreds of years before they occurred. The Spirit of God was inside of them, giving them insight and inspiring them to speak and later inspiring them to write scripture. This is why Paul could say to Timothy, 
All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for rebuke and so forth. So then, if we consider the operations of the Holy Spirit in people, you can see that from the beginning of time until now, it has been the Godhead's desire to take up residence inside of a human vessel because it is through us that God is able to wear blue jeans and dresses and fine suits. It's through us that God is able to walk down the sidewalk, ride on the bus, sit on the bench at the courthouse. It's through people like you and me that God is able to manifest his will in all of the earth. The kingdom of God being the realm or the domain over which he has power only has its force in people like you who are willing to submit to what God desires of us. Now, in Scripture, the Holy Spirit at times is symbolized by fire, sometimes by a river or water, at other times by wind. Well, when we think of fire, you know as well as I do, there are such things as controlled fire. And they're used to burn topsoil sometimes, to cleanse the earth of various impurities for people that are going to use that soil. But then there's also a controlled fire that people use for providing warmth. You think of a fireplace. You think of people putting all kinds of sticks together and trying to gather heat from that. Well, in the sense of a controlled fire, let's not forget Leviticus 10. Tells the story of Nadab and Abihu. It says they offered strange fire to God in the tabernacle. What is a strange fire? It's sacrifices that God wasn't pleased with. Anytime you offer to God what he has rejected, but you have found approved, and then you give it to God as though it's a gift from you, knowing that he won't be pleased with it, it's a strange offering unto him. And these individuals being priests, Scripture says the fire of the Lord went out and consumed them instantly. They died in the judgment of the Lord. Nobody else died, just simply them. It was a controlled judgment. It dealt with those individuals. We think of Peter in Mark 14, verse 54. It says that when Jesus was on trial, Mr. Peter went outside and stood with a small group, and they were all around the fire. And one lady said to him, I do believe I've seen you before, and I think I saw you with Jesus and some of those other disciples. And Peter began to swear, and he said, I'm, I promise you, I don't know any of those people. But right there at the fire, that man of God lied concerning his relationship with God. So when I think of the fire of God, I remember that there are also wildfires. We hear about them all the time. Now, these are different. They're uncontrollable, and very often they induce fear. And the wind being a terrible helper to these fires, if there's nothing to impede the fire's advancement, homes will burn down. Sides of hills will be scorched. You see it every year. People on television weeping and crying because of all of this that occurs. 
But people say very often that they want a revival in the church. What they're saying is we want God to begin to do something in that sanctuary amongst the people. We want a fire to break out that only God is able to handle. But if that truly begins to take place, I can promise you it'll expose some things and God will consume some things that are in our hearts and in our lives. Most people have little desire to let God work in their life as a sanctifying flame, consuming habits and character traits that do not represent God well. But for a revival to come, it changes people. You know, in old times, when people talked about a revival coming to a county, I mean, the beer gardens would shut down. Saloons go out of business because revival had come. We think of a revival now as very simply two a day, two or three uh, meetings where somebody preaches the gospel. When true revival breaks out, there's a change in what's occurring in people's lives. It's like a river that breaks out. That river can carve a new channel and it can make sure that the riverbed now moves in a different direction in which it originally was going. I've been in places where God began to move. And seeing the exposure of what happens when the wind blows. When that wind blows, sometimes God blows back those, those, those spiritual leaves and you can see the, the barren ground that's there. Years ago, I preached a revival for the church of God. I'll never forget in that meeting, the altars were filled. People were in the altars on their knees crying out to God. Elderly people. We're in a meeting and hadn't hadn't been in a meeting like that in a long time. But after two or three days of ministering the word, somebody came and got me. He said, Pastor, would you come over to the parsonage? We, we need you to, to minister to someone. I get over there to the parsonage and in the corner is the pastor's wife. She's in a fetal position. She's crying. She said, I don't want to go back over there. I don't want to go back over there. Well, the spirit of God was at work in that church and conviction was at work in that church. And God was dealing with the hearts of many people. And here she had a nervous breakdown during the revival. And by the time it was over and God had changed the course and the direction of that church, the pastor and his wife had resigned the church and both of them backslid and went back to drugs. Think about it. See, people say they want revival. And you never know what happens when the wind begins to blow in that sanctuary. I preached for several weeks in a church one time. God was filling young people with the Holy Spirit all over the place. Wonderful testimonies were, were coming out of it. And I, up on the second floor in the balcony, I saw the pastor up there. So I went and sat next to him. When I sat down with him, he, he was weeping and crying, had his head down in his hands. And I said, Pastor, what's wrong? Are you okay? He said, he said, I've been here all of these years, have never been able to see God move like this in the congregation. He said, it breaks my heart to see it going on now, but I rejoice with everything that's happening. I left that meeting after three weeks. He resigned the church the very next day. But we left the church with young folks full of the Holy Ghost and on fire for God and passionate because the wind blew. See, Because the wind blew. When the fire begins to burn in the church and the people gather around to warm themselves by that fire, there will be a change in how we live. That sanctifying flame is there to deal with how we live, to deal with our heart, to deal with our lifestyle. So the scripture tells us in Isaiah chapter six that he is getting a vision of God. When he sees God, he said, oh, Lord, I'm a man, a 
of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. Suddenly that seraphim with six six wings took off and flew over to the altar, grabbed the coal, made his way back to Isaiah and put that on his lips and said, your iniquity is taken away from you and your sin is purged. I'm so glad that Isaiah didn't run from that fire. I'm so glad that he didn't shoo that seraphim away. But he submitted to what God wanted to do. When God begins to work on you and he's working on me and the church, it affects our speech. It affects our lifestyle. Folks, I preached in churches where I knew a revival was needed. I'm telling you, I knew it. I've been there. We're on the praise team, people up on the platform, and the, the, the young ladies sometimes have miniskirt on short enough that it couldn't even, couldn't even cover up a turtle at all. And I've seen them where they had shirts where the cleavage goes from their neck to their navel. And they're up there with all of this on, young men with skinny jeans on and every other kind of thing you can think of. And the congregation out here trying to enter into worship and you've got all of that going on on the platform. Do you really think their minds are on God? No, their minds are not on God. Their minds are on that platform. Well, it's important to know. That of all the titles of the Holy Spirit, the one outstanding description that is most prominent is the word holy. Think about that. The word holy. Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. The primary work of the Spirit of God is to produce in you as well as in me holiness. To live a life for God that's pure. Scripture said, holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Second Peter 1 and 3 says, according to the divine power, which has given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. That being true, the divine power is God the Holy Ghost, who's leading us to better living. And in this day of unbalanced grace, as far as the teaching of it, lawlessness prevails. There has to be a balance with this. Now, I know what the difference between legalism and lawlessness is. If I said to you, I don't drink liquor or I'm saved because I don't drink liquor, that's legalism. But if I said to you, I don't drink liquor because I have a relationship with God, that's a walk in the Holy Spirit. So the difference between the legalism and the lawlessness has everything to do with how we approach the issue of grace. Ephesians 2 and 8, by grace we are saved through faith, that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. But at the same time, grace requires of us that we live for God as debtors, knowing that he has redeemed us. I've been bought lock, stock, and barrel. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. This body belongs to God. You dress it in modesty. You handle your speech and your mind according to the pattern that God has established in the scripture. But whenever lawlessness prevails, it usually is because the church is following the culture and the culture has come to tell us what is right and what is wrong. And I know it because anytime somebody promulgates any kind of standards of how to live or how not to live, people say it's legalism. Now think of this. Earlier last week, I saw a program on the news where a lady in her late 20s, early 30s, was talking about young people and social media. 
She was talking about all the bad things that are on some of these sites that young people can be exposed to. And then she goes on to say, I'm encouraging all of you watching by way of television to sit down with your children and have non-judgmental conversations with them about inappropriate material. I sat there, looked at that, and I laughed. I said, that's impossible. You cannot have a non-judgmental conversation about something that you deem that's inappropriate because if you already deem it to be inappropriate, you've already passed judgment on it. You see? But because we want to sound politically correct and we want to sound like we're tolerant of so many different things, the spirit of God has departed the church and the spirit of the world has invaded the church. And we can't figure out why we don't know whether we're coming or going. So God showed this to us. There's no conviction in many churches because there's no convictions in the preaching. The preacher doesn't know what he believes, so he passes that confusion on to the people. Preachers who deny the inspiration of Scripture, who depreciate the supernatural events recorded in the Scripture, by their confusion, they encourage Christians to approve of lifestyles that God himself has already declared patently that he rejects. Now you think of this. Who would have ever believed that on one of my trips, Coming back from preaching, I'd take out a little magazine on the airplane and it would tell me that over in Europe, there's a couple that's suing in court so that they can get the incest laws thrown out because a brother and sister had gotten married and had five or six kids. Who would have ever thought something like that would occur? But then if somebody would have told me that in the last month, We'd have north of us in Red Cloud in another county, a father married to his daughter. I would have said to you, it's a lie, but we've lived to see it happen. Think about it. That kind of wickedness comes into the church where people say, well, you you don't have a right to tell somebody that they can't love somebody. Well, I do know from the scripture That there are some people you can fall in love with and it's an illegitimate affection. It's not approved of God. The Bible says you ought not fall in love with and lust after somebody else's spouse. God says that's illegitimate. That means there are boundaries. Also, David had a son, fell in love with his sister. Bible says he physically assaulted his sister and it was wickedness. One of the other brothers sat and stewed over it and brooded over it and was so angry about it, he took his own brother's life. Don't tell me that you can't tell somebody not to fall in love with certain people. It doesn't matter to me what the background, what the culture says. All I'm saying is there is certain people folks shouldn't fall in love with. And a man shouldn't fall in love with another man. But once the spirit of God departs from a church or a movement, then the spirit of the world comes in and produces a greater confusion. But God, the Holy Ghost, he takes imperfect people like you and me who have been perfectly redeemed. And then he transforms us daily, seeking to create a bridal company who will be ready for the coming of the Lord. Folks, one day the trumpet of God is going to sound. We have to be ready. 
And the pure bride that God seeks to preserve in these last days is not some mixed up thing that doesn't know its characteristics or doesn't know its father. It's supposed to have a relationship with the king. Spirit of God operates in us as an indwelling spirit, bearing witness that we're the children of God. In a culture governed by the powers of darkness, constant confirmation is needed to know that we're of God. Born of an incorruptible seed, each believer has a resemblance to God. This is how we know we're connected with God. We act like God. We look like God. If, I, if my mother was in here right now and she's been to Nebraska, you know that looking at her, you can tell I come from her. If my dad was in here, my biological father, if he was in here, you'd be able to see that I'm bow-legged because he is bow-legged. I walk just like him. If, if you come to recognize who some of my siblings are, then you'll know that our actions are, are connected to how we were raised. The mentality that we had is connected to how we were raised. It didn't matter whether or not we were godly or ungodly. They're just certain principles and traits that are inherent in that kid when he grows up. So the little girl wants to be like mama. She tries to put on them heels and wander around the house just like just like mama did. And the little boy wants to put on the cowboy boots and stumbles all around outside trying to be just like daddy or trying to put on some overalls or wants to put on a suit and tie and, and dress real smart and look real nice. Well, if we understand that, then we know what is born of God by the fruit that comes out of them. You shall know them by their fruit, Scripture says. I can tell if somebody knows the king by what they say and by what they do. And I can see if the Spirit of God is at work in them. When I turn the TV on and I see a governor of a state sitting there on a radio program, and he's got other people sitting around him, and he's describing how an abortion bill is going to be enacted. And he says, well, maybe the lady's eyes will be dilated, and then the baby will be born. If the baby's born dead, then possibly the child will be resuscitated. If the baby's born alive, then the child will be made to feel comfortable, and then the, there'll be a conversation between the mother and the doctor regarding whether or not the child continues to live. When I hear that, I know that that is not coming from God at all. Doesn't matter what anybody say. I don't care where they go to church, where they claim to go to church. That process of thought does not derive from the mind of God. Ecclesiastes 11, verse number five says, As thou knowest not the way of the spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child. Even so, thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. That is to say that when that child is in that womb, that's God. It's causing everything to grow. It doesn't matter to me if the baby is nine pounds, two ounces, four pounds, seven ounces, or if it's only a half ounce. It's God producing the life, causing it to grow. And if we understand that, then when the spirit of this world is at work in us, we'll continue to allow the spirit of God to speak to us clearly about what is true and about what is right. So Jesus, knowing the kind of world he was going to leave those disciples in when he ascended to heaven, he understood that if you're going to function in a world that is so obviously antichrist, 
He said, you've got to wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. That's what he said. Jesus knew that if they're going to face and overcome a Greco-Roman culture, they're going to need power to witness courageously. Not enough just to be born of the blood and to know Christ. You've got to come from Calvary to that upper room, to the temple precincts where the dove of God can light upon you and descend upon you in a powerful way. Acts chapter 2, 120 people filled with the Holy Spirit began to speak with tongues. But Acts chapter 2 is about more, much, much more than simply tongues. To move beyond a weak kind of Christianity that cowers in the presence of ungodly persons, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that God can speak through our lips. So that we can roll our shoulders back in an ungodly world and say that Jesus Christ is the only answer. Somebody has to be willing to find a Jerusalem and wait on God. Tonight could be our time. Today, here could be our Jerusalem, but everybody needs a place where in the presence of God, they say, oh, Lord, do to me what you did to these men and women in the book of Acts. It's an experience that produces a spirit of power, and God accompanies us in ways that he hasn't accompanied us hitherto. It's not about second and first class Christians. It's about living in a world that's ungodly and having all that God has made available in order to be able to overcome what's in this world. The people in this world don't like God. We know that. The people in this world are opposed to God. But the one thing I do know is that the Holy Ghost, when he descends in that church, supernatural things begin to take place. Men and women have dreams and visions. Prophecies will break out. Tongues and interpretations will occur. Hands will be laid on the sick and crooked bones will be made straight. Devils will be cast out and miracles will occur because somebody decided to wait on God. To be endued with power is to expect God to do the supernatural. Well, let me read this testimony to you from 1950. This was a judge in Wyoming and it says a Wyoming Justice of Peace sends in his testimony of healing. And on his letterhead, it has his name, Ralph W. Gehring, Justice of the Peace for District Number 1 in the County Courthouse in Casper, Wyoming. He says, in the year 1943, I was afflicted with coronary thrombosis. He said, I was down or low for many weeks. Gradually, I improved and was able to get out, but not able to work. Then arthritis of the heart came to me, and I developed a very enlarged heart and suffered a great deal. When I heard that William Wilbur Ogilvie was a healing evangelist under a tent, when I heard that he was coming to Casper to hold meetings, I decided to go. That was the first meeting of this kind I had ever attended. The first night I got a seat in the second row. This is the judge talking now. He said in the second row, and while Brother Ogilvy was praying for the sick, said the Spirit of God came down upon me and my heart was healed immediately. As the meetings continued, I attended and believed in God, had my deaf ear prayed for, which I hadn't heard through for 39 years. This is what he said. 
The eardrum was broken by air hammer and only a miracle could restore it. But the next morning I went to my office and once at once I called my wife and praised the Lord. She started praising the Lord, too, for I could carry on a regular conversation with her without one of those ear horns. And we just rejoiced because of God and how he had healed me. Do you wonder why I'm so happy I'm saved and healed that I might be a witness to others? Folks, there's no way on this earth that anybody can come to know God in a real, in a real way and then walk away without believing that God is a supernatural God. Nobody has ever stepped into these living waters and came out of the other side saying God doesn't do miracles today. But there are a whole lot of people that have stepped into a dead sea somewhere and said God doesn't care about us. He's not interested in us. I'm telling you, God, the Holy Ghost is very interested in you and he's very interested in me. When T.L. Osborne was, had, had a tent up in uh, Newcastle, Pennsylvania, they said that people came from everywhere. Thousands of folks came. But somebody brought three deaf mutes. One, deaf and dumb from birth. That means haven't heard, never spoke a word. But in that meeting, without anybody laying hands on, on, on that particular one, that man or that young boy was healed. That mother drove all the way back home, told the husband about what happened. The husband, an unbeliever, so angry and upset, he said, I don't care what you say about the healing. You take that boy back to school in Pittsburgh where he can, he can continue to learn sign language. I don't believe that this is real. She said, if I take him to the school, they're just going to call and send him home. Sure enough, drove all the way to Pittsburgh, put him back in the school. A week later, the school called the father and said, this boy can form words as clearly as any human being we've ever met. And he can hear everything that we're saying. You've got to come and get him. You tell me, God, Holy Ghost isn't real. The power of that, you see. Jack Cole put a tent up in Tyler, Texas. Had thousands of people up under that tent without even bringing them to the altar, but with them in their seats. 300 people baptized in the Holy Spirit, like the book of Acts, all at one time. Folks, all I'm saying to you is that the reality of what we're a part of requires that we ourselves be yielded and submitted to God. Say, Father, I'm available to whatever you want. I've seen them from six years old get full, filled, all the way up to when they're in their 90s. God filling them with the Holy Spirit. I've seen people hungry for God to the point where they go to sleep at night and they told me, Pastor, I woke up the next morning speaking in tongues, middle of the night. Folks been in the car driving. Say they reached for that knob on that radio. God began to pour it in as they were driving. Wife and I one time were were in uh, Red Cloud in the home and some friends of hers from Bible college had come by. This young man was a rodeo guy. He had to be in his probably his early 30s, mid-30s or something like that. But he, but he had lived in all of these bunkhouses. And so he was headed out to Dorth Platte where he had been working for a long time. So here they're coming into uh, Red Cloud and they stopped by the house to see Tiff. And we're sitting there and the wife says, Brother Darrell, would you explain to my husband about the Holy Spirit? I said, sure, I'd love to do that. And so I walked him through Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts, Acts 10, Acts 19. And he said, well, what would you pray for me? I said, oh, yes. Now, you've got to understand, he was a rough customer. I mean, he'd been a rodeo man 
all his life. He broke most of the bones in his face. He broke just about all of his fingers while he was talking to me, took all his teeth out and then stuck them back in. I mean, he had a rough life. And, and so when we got ready to pray, I said to him, I said, we're going to believe that the moment I touch you, power of God's going to come on you. He said, now, wait, wait. He said, now, if you if you touch me, he said, if this happens, am I going to be able to drive after this? I said, well, it's like new wine. I said, you might be so drunk on this, you'll stagger to the car. I don't know what's going to happen to you. He said, well, okay, okay, let's do it. So we laid hands on him. God filled him with the Holy Spirit right there on our living room floor. And I mean, he had the happiest time of his life. So what am I saying? I'm saying God is real. What we know of God is real. And we never have reason to be ashamed of God. Never have reason to be ashamed of scripture. But expectation is a wonderful thing. And knowing that what God did do, he does do. And that what he does do, he will do. And if we understand that, we'll always be ready for what God wants. Let's stand on our feet tonight. Let's find us a song. And for a few moments, we can worship God. <laughs>